Nothing in this world will ever be more important than those events. He was born, he lived and died, he was buried, he rose again, and so I shall return. I shall return. You know what? Let's get right into it this morning on this Resurrection Sunday. Let's go in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. We just read a little bit of that during the song service. And I want to just simply talk to you today about raised and ready to return. Verse 1, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. They departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. I just want to point something out because I probably won't touch on this again. These are two words that we usually don't see go together. I mean, if you're fearful, you're not joyful. If you're joyful, you're usually not fearful. It's just a strange thing. I'll have to give more time to it to meditate on that connection. They departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. We have something similar at the raising of Lazarus from the dead, too. Great fear fell on them when he said, Lazarus, come forth. But joy at the same time. I don't know that in life in general or the scriptures, there's ever that combination laying side by side like that. In any case, verse 8 once again, And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that shall go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch, and this is the Roman guards, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. You remember on Good Friday I spoke to you about that. The same thing with Judas. What he did, he sold out Jesus for money. First Timothy 5 says the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. And by the way, you could be poor and still love money. I mean, it becomes idolatrous because you figure, I've got to have this. When God has promised to supply all of our needs. And then verse 12 again. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. You remember the Roman military, one of the penalties, death penalties, and there were many, for a Roman soldier would be falling asleep at your post. Naturally, they were afraid. They didn't fall asleep. But they were paid a large sum of money to say they did. They were fearful of what they had seen. They were fearful of what now would become of them. And this was the result. But what we need to look at is verse 15. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. 
So it was said, right until the time that John was, or Matthew, rather, was writing his version of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right up until this time, the claim was that someone stole the body, which establishes the fact that the grave where they put Jesus was empty. No one was in there. He is risen as he said. And we have a lot here in these verses. I just wanted to read them to you. But I'd like to bring to you the summary conclusion of a biblical scholar. It's passed on now. His name was Hugh Schoenfield. And in 1965, he wrote a book called The Passover Plot. As a biblical scholar, and studying the scriptures, the New Testament, other documents surrounding the history of the times of the New Testament, and doing all this research, this biblical scholar, this British biblical scholar, who just happened to be a Jewish and a liberal Jew, these were his conclusions in the book known as The Passover Plot. Number one, that Jesus was deeply religious Jewish man, probably well-versed in the teachings of the local northern sects, such as the Nazarenes and the Essenes. Number two, that growing up in biblical Galilee, he had a skeptical and somewhat rebellious relationship to the hierarchy and teachings mandated by the authorities, which would be the Sadducees, of the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, these are the conclusions of a biblical scholar. Number three, that Jewish messianic expectation was extremely high in those times, by the way, as it is right now in Israel also, matched to the despair caused by the Roman occupation of the land and subjugation of the Jews. Fourthly, Schoenfield concluded that he was in many ways, Jesus was in many ways, both typical of his times and yet extraordinary in his religious convictions and beliefs in his scholarship of the biblical literature and in the fervency in which he lived his religion out in his daily life. Then he was convinced of his role, that Jesus of Nazareth was convinced of his role as the expected Messiah based on the authority of his having been descendant from King David, which was the royal bloodline, and that he consciously and methodically to the point of being calculating, attempted to fulfill that role, being eminently well-versed in the details of what that role entailed. That he was convinced of the importance of his fulfilling the role perfectly, with the prophecies and expectations being what they were, and that he could not allow himself to fail, and that would undoubtedly lead to his being declared a false messiah. Schoenfield also said that he was, Jesus was perfectly aware of the consequences of his actions all along the way, and that he directed his closest supporters, the original 12 apostles, unknowingly to aid him in his plans. So in other words, the 12 really didn't know what Jesus was doing, but Jesus knew what he was doing. Finally, he involved the least possible number of supporters in his plans, therefore very few knew of the details of his final plan, and even then only the least amount of information necessary. This is Schoenfield, biblical scholar. These are his conclusions after how many years of research, I don't know. And so the culmination of his plan was to be his death, his resurrection, and reign as the true kingly and priestly Messiah, not in heaven, this is Schoenfield speaking, not in heaven, but on earth the realized king of the Jews. And I have to make a comment there at this point and say, well, if that was his expectation, he failed because he was dead. In essence, what Schoenfield stated was this. Jesus was not only calculating and cunning, but he was deceiving. He manipulated his own disciples. He knew what he was doing. He was setting himself up for this ideal of being the Messiah, but not in heaven as he spoke about so often, but on earth which, once again, if indeed he was crucified, would be a terrible failure. Jesus said, beware of the scribes and Pharisees. 
Now, who are the scribes? Well, they were the one who gave us the Bible. I mean, the copies. We've been through this before of what the scribes, what they had to do to copy the scriptures accurately. And Jesus said, beware of them. We, if we were Jews at the time, or maybe now, we can make the argument. So these are the people that spend hours every day transcribing every letter exactly with all that we've gone through before, the spacing of the letters and all. They're very meticulous. The Pharisees were the lawyers. They were the ones who interpreted the Bible. And Jesus said, watch out for them. He said, now do what they say to do. Just don't do what they do. And Jesus called them hypocrites. So according to Schoenfield, now I would say it to you this way, beware of biblical scholars and beware of theologians. That doesn't mean theologians are all apostates or heretics. It certainly doesn't mean that all biblical scholars are heretics or apostates, but they're in there and they have been. And so when you don't know who you're reading, when you're looking for a commentary on the Bible, you're liable to fall on people like Schoenfeld. That was his conclusion as a biblical scholar. And I thought to myself, if I was him, then I would have done this. I would have closed this book and I would have announced to everybody that after all these years of studying, I found out that Jesus was a liar. And I would have dismissed myself from that and found anything else to do for work. But as far as I know, he didn't. And then he went on to form the Commonwealth of World Citizens. You know, let's all get along and play nice, basically, is what it was. Which was not bad. The goals of that was not bad. But he did it alongside. He was the founder, Schoenfeld, along with H.G. Wells, who was an atheist. You see, there's been for so long a rejection of the testimony of Scripture. We read it right here. From the beginning, there was a rejection of the truth of what actually happened. That Jesus came along and fulfilled the prophecies of the scriptures that was given by the Holy Spirit and God the Father, and we know God the Son, the triune God. And he fulfilled them, that he really died, he was really buried, and he really rose again. And he's alive. And he says to us, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst. Then he says again, and I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. I will be with you right to the end of the age. And since the age has not ended, Jesus is still with us. Amen. He's risen. Now, just for an opposing view, I want to give you something that my brother here sent me, and it was really good. And I said, oh, I've got to include that in the message. Remember Chuck Colson, those of you old enough here to remember Watergate, President Nixon, and the intrusion into the Democratic headquarters there at the Watergate Hotel and so forth. And President Nixon would have been impeached, but he resigned and men went to jail. Chuck Colson was one of the first to go to jail. He was known as President Nixon's hatchet man. He was a lawyer and he was the special counsel to President Nixon. I thought to myself, if you as a lawyer would become the special counsel to the President of the United States, it may be well argued that you are the most important lawyer, on the, at least in America, more important than the Supreme Court justices because you're giving counsel to the president. This is how you handle this situation legally. And so he did some of the dirty work and he was one of the first to go to prison. Seven months he spent at Maxwell Federal Prison. And it was in prison that Chuck Colson came to Christ. And for the rest of his life on earth, he served Jesus Christ. But when he did, this was the conclusion that Chuck Colson, or President Nixon's hatchet man, came to. The conclusion that he came to. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. He didn't add here, and he should have, uh, or could have, that they were killed. I mean, they died. And they never recanted their testimony. 
They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Now remember, Chuck Colson was one of the first to go to prison. And he states this. He said, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. You know, it's amazing to me. We read, you know, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou hast ordained praise. And how God has picked not the wise and not the most famous and so on. But he's chosen, well, people like you. People like me, just regular average people. In some cases, the worst of the bunch. And he said, follow me. And he does that to confound the wise. So here's a biblical scholar coming to some conclusion that could only be summed up in biblical terms by saying he was a heretic. And a man who goes to prison for being truly calculating and scheming and trying to deceive the American public and people and all that says, I was one of the 12 most powerful men in the world and we couldn't keep alive for three weeks. Is it probable that these apostles, and then of course there were more, but let's stick with just the 12, Judas being an exception, could keep the truth for 40 years after all they went through? If this were not true, if Jesus was not risen from the dead, he's alive. He's alive. And because he lives, we sing the song, we can face Tomorrow. I don't know why it doesn't start with today. We can face today. Tomorrow, I don't know about tomorrow. Sometimes I'm going one hour at a time. Because he lives, we can face today and tomorrow and the day after until God says, come on home. And that will be a day. That will be a day. And we also should take into consideration, based on the conclusions of men like Sconefield, Men like C.S. Lewis, who was an Oxford scholar. He was a scholar in literature, but he was an Oxford professor and scholar who was an atheist. Lewis writes, quote, In the Trinity team of 1929, I gave in, admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Then he went on to write so many great theologically-based books and his friend, J.R. Tolkien, whose movies now are very, very popular, was also a Christian who led C.S. Lewis. And there were many Oxford scholars that had an influence on C.S. Lewis. Totally different conclusion. Here's a man who's a scholar in, at Oxford in literature, converted from atheism to true Christianity, to truly following Christ, and a biblical scholar. And there's been many of them through the years that come up with all these convoluted heretical teachings. But just the fact that 12 men never recanted their testimony. And there was many others too. I mean, thousands of other people who went to their death because they would not deny Jesus Christ. They would not deny Jesus Christ. It's not probable that anyone would do that for something they know is a lie. It's not probable that you would die for something you know is a lie. I mean, you actually know that you were part of the, you're like Chuck Colson. You were part of the scheme and you're going to prison and you're going to keep perpetrating the lie. No, we never broke in. No, none of them did. None of them did. Yet the apostles, every one of them, most of them were killed, stoned, beaten, tortured, but they never recanted. He's alive and he's coming again. And we know from the scriptures and from the creeds of early Christianity, he's coming to judge the living and the dead. Therefore, I bring to you today raised and ready to return. Andrew Claven was a Jewish-American. First he was an atheist, then he was agnostic, and then he converted to Christianity. He was a prolific writer. Then there was also Alan Sadage, who was a very prominent astronomer. He also converted to Christ. 
And these were his words, and there's a lot to this. Sandage said, I could not live a life full of cynicism. I chose to believe, and a peace of mind came over me. Well, Jesus taught us, have faith in God. You believe in God, believe also in me, and then we go from there. Because some things are difficult to reason. Now, the scriptures are reasonable. But we cannot reason through every single thing that we would like to either understand or know. But one thing we can say, the evidence is beyond reasonable doubt. And it may be argued that it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. It means there's no doubt. Jesus raised himself from the dead. No one's ever done that. And so I want to bring this to you too. I like to say to you that Jesus said, I will build my church. And I want to emphasize my church. He's not building somebody else's church. He's not building the board of elders idea of a church or the ambitious pastor or whoever else is out there. He's not building their church. He's building his church. And I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now remember, ecclesia is the Greek word for church. And it's not talking about a building. It's talking about you. Every single one of you that truly believe in Christ. He said, I will build you, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. I give life, but not just life. We have biological and psychological life. I give eternal life, and no one can take it away. No one can take you from the palm of my hand. No one. And certainly not going to be God, because God is the one who gave us eternal life, right? If God be for us, can a biblical scholar be against us? And it's not that I'm super hypercritical of Mr. Schoenfield. I mean, people come to these conclusions for various reasons, but, you know, that's their business, I guess. Well, he's gone now, but it hasn't shaken my faith. The Apostle Paul said, I have known whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to... Keep. Remember, the Apostle Paul didn't start out as a believer. He was killing Christians until Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. The light came from heaven. A voice came. And spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Well, Jesus was already gone. What is he saying here? That if someone touches you, or tries to touch you, because of your standing in Christ, Jesus stands up and says, wait a second, you're touching me. They try to touch you, they're touching Christ himself. Christ is going to stand. I shared this with you last Sunday. Christ will defend you. You don't have to defend yourself. Sometimes you do because you've got to give an explanation. But Christ is our defense. They come against the church, I mean, you and me, they come against Christ. And that won't be successful. Because if God be for us, who can be against us? Who can stand up? <laughs> Vladimir Putin? Who? Who's going to come against us and say, we're going to wipe out Christianity? How many people have said that? Have made that statement? They're going to wipe it out in their lifetime. They're well gone, and the church continues to grow. The church continues to be built up and edified just as Jesus said because he's alive, because he is who he said he was. He is the Messiah. Not the one that not only the Jews, but even some Christians throughout the years expect is going to do certain things their way. But he will return. I shall come again. I will come again. Last night I was watching, it's a long movie, I was watching the second half of Ben-Hur. And you can say, I think, uh, they just don't make movies like that anymore. I know there's a lot of good Christian movies coming out, but, you know, when you have Cecil B. DeMille and some of these imposing directors, when Hollywood was producing movies, you know, King of Kings and so on. I was watching the movie, and it got me interested to recall what was behind the motivation and in the mind of General Lew Wallace. He's the one who wrote the book. And it's interesting. First of all, the title of the book or the movie is not Ben-Hur. Is Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. Lou Wallace wasn't, at the time, a very uh, overly devoted Christian. 
He never belonged in his entire life to any Christian denomination. He simply took up writing to divert his mind from law. He was a lawyer, a politician. Obviously, he was a union general during the Civil War. He was governor of the territory of New Mexico. He did a lot of things. And he took up writing just as a kind of a way to like a hobby. When he wrote Ben-Hur, his second book, it became what is known today as the most influential book of the 19th century. Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. <clears throat> but what interested me is that what motivated him to write? He just wanted to kind of tell this story, and it changed form after a while until it became what it is today. And as we read it, or if you haven't read it, I'm sure you've seen the movie. And General Lew Wallace stated, when he just started to write, just as a hobby, and he picked that theme, the more that he wrote, the more reverential and the more awe was going through him as he was writing his story, his fictional story. But it's certainly based on the way Jesus is. Now here's the thing. This is in his own words, General Lew Wallace, the author of Ben-Hur. What really began to solidify, <laughs> interesting, began to solidify his writings and his dedication, not only to the book, but then to Jesus Christ, was a conversation he had on a train with the most imposing atheist in the 19th century, Robert Ingersoll. Robert Ingersoll's father was a pastor. He was a pastor's kid, Robert Ingersoll. He hated Christianity, hated Christians, and he was a very formidable foe when he would do debates and raise his points. Interesting also is that Robert Ingersoll's father was a pastor with Charles Finney. And he hated Christianity. He hated Christians, Robert Ingersoll. So they meet on the train, General Lou Wallace and Robert Ingersoll. And it was in that conversation that the more that Ingersoll spoke to Lou Wallace, the more convinced he was he was doing the right thing in writing the book, Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. And so it brought him to a place of more and more devotion to Christ. I would submit to you that if you will study the scriptures, turn that television set off. Start to take this seriously because he's not only raised, he's ready to return. And it's not going to be as some have pictured it. These Bible scholars and preachers and whoever else is out there that really make it up. They don't stick with the text. It will not be pleasant for everyone. In the Old Testament, we have a verse where the prophet is speaking to Israel. He says, you want the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It's not going to be good for you when he appears. But for those of us who have trusted, who have labored, who have paid the price in a manner of speaking, what a day that's going to be. It's like quitting time at work. Huh. Many a day, it's not so much in ministry because there is no quitting time. You're just always on duty. Many a day, but I was glad to punch out and go home. And if you feel the same way? No, it's only me. Okay, fine. <laughs> That's how it's going to be. Then let me tell you why. Since there was no one in the tomb, what no one means to you and me. The fact that there was no one in the tomb means, first of all, that no one can take away the love of God from our hearts. Amen. We read it. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The words of the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, 38 and 39. No one's in the tomb, right? That's what happens when they arrive here. There's no one in there. The tomb is empty. The fact is, since there's no one in the tomb, no one can take away from you the love of God and the love that God has for you. No one can take it away. We used to sing a song, an old song, you know. I've got something that the world can't give. The world can't take it away. I've said this to you before, and I want to say it again because it's becoming more real to me, more irritating, I should say. The more I do, when I do turn on television later at night, it's the only time I watch it, and if there's commercials or on something, you know, so I always watch old movies, as you know, I'm getting irritated. 
I'm getting irritated by the lawyer who says, hurt in a car call. He's irritating me. Now I've decided if I'm hurt in the car, he'd be the last person I'm going to call. And he's not going to convince me if I was to call him up today that he's concerned about me. No, the other three that are down there in Albany. They're looking to make money. As an American, I have no objection to making money, but I just want to let you know you're irritating me. You're irritating me because the world is getting irritating. All that we see that defies common sense and common decency, that is a violation of just basic general ethical behavior. And it's everywhere. It's in our sports. Obviously, it's in our government. We have now appointed a woman to the Supreme Court who states that she cannot properly identify a woman, which leads me to believe she doesn't know herself what she is as far as a gender. Remember, this is the Supreme Court. Her reasoning that she cannot properly identify a woman is because she's not a biologist. But I'm telling you, since about the fourth grade or so, I knew what a girl was. And if you go to the grade school and ask any of the boys, do you know, can you point out a girl? So this girl right there. This a girl. It's only as they get indoctrinated later on through the years, starting grade school, in our schools, and then high school, that the mind becomes confused. These young people asking the question, how can I be sure of my gender? I mean, it's very, very sad. And I want to say this again. This is the reason why we must reach the children with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can have the foundation and the only foundation that's going to survive this present world. I will come again. And if I come, I will receive you unto myself. We live in a world that's intellectually ridiculous. We live in a world that is, to me, I'm not speaking for you, it's irritating because it's just unintelligent and vexing. In any case, there was no one in the tomb. And no one can take away the love of God that God has for you. No one can take away your hope. Oh, you realize how many people, especially, we're spawning more and more of them that look at us even today and say, what dopes. And they say about us, how stupid we are, how stupid. (laughs) Yeah, well, guess what? He is no fool that gives that which you cannot keep to gain that which you cannot lose. No, I know whom I've believed. I know whom I believed, and I'm persuaded. He's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I'm persuaded. Are you persuaded? Listen, no one can take away our hope. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. That means his counsel cannot change, because that's in the nature of God. God never changes. He's always the same in all of his attributes. Love studying the attributes of God. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. Though they could laugh, let's just hope that they come to Christ rather than simply laugh. But we have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have is an anchor of the soul. Again, it's like this verse here, fear and joy. You know, sometimes they're mixed together. It doesn't seem like they should go together. But I have found in my life, no matter how much I'm moved, there's an anchor or a cork. I feel like a cork sometimes. I'm underwater. I feel like I'm drowning. I feel like I'm not going to make it. All of a sudden, boop, you just pop back up to the surface again. And that anchor is holding us. That anchor is the promise of God, eternal life, the word of God, the prayer life of other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's Christ himself who's seated at the right hand of God, who's praying for us right now. You believe this? Now, if there was nobody else in this room that believes this, there's one that does. It's the guy standing right here. I believe it. Because I'm telling you right now, I would never live something I knew was a lie. 
And again, if I came to the same conclusion after what's well, been 45 years of studying the Bible, that, you know what, I have doubts about this, and I've done enough reading and research, I would be honest about it and just say, I quit and do something else. This is a hoax. But the longer I go, as Benjamin Franklin said at the Constitutional Convention, he said, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. <laughs> That's Benjamin Franklin. He was a deist. Why does God always pick these people? It's always supposed to be the great imposing Christian with all this, you know, I had my head measured just recently for something, a reason. And I found out that it's large. That I have a large head. So I made the conclusion it's the brain. It's taking up a lot of room. But that's the ones that we always expect is going to be the one who's going to come out with these profound things. And who is it? It's the person you never expected. That they have these great revelations that God gave to them. Simply because that's the tools he used to confound the wise. To humble the, well, some of the Bible scholars. Listen, I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 6. Which hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. That means it never changes. And which entered into that within the veil. So now we're into Old Testament typology. Whither the forerunner, Christ, is for us entered. Even Jesus made an high priest, even after the order of Melchizedek. Simply put, it's this, as I said before. He's in the heavens, and he's making intercession. And all of this, I don't really always comprehend how it works. But I don't have to. I know that it works. You know, I know when you're praying for me, I feel the difference in my spirit. But I think to myself, Jesus is praying for me? Jesus prayed for Peter. I mean, yeah, this is amazing. You almost could write a song like Amazing Grace, you know, uh, sweet the sound or something. <laughs> it's God. And he's the anchor of our soul. What is troubling you today? Believe me, I have as many things troubling my mind as troubling yours. But the anchor holds me steadfast. I don't like the way God does things. I got to be truthful. But the anchor holds me steadfast. Jesus is my Savior. I shall not be moved. In his loving favor, I shall not be moved. So no one can take away the love of God towards us. No one can take away our hope. Thirdly, no one can take away our strength. Has thou not known, has thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainted not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. Listen to this. He giveth power to the faint. He doesn't give power to the powerful. He gives power to the faint. Do you feel faint today, all the troubles that you have? Well, you are a great candidate for God's power to fill you and strengthen you today. He doesn't put it in the mail. No, well, sometimes he does. But God always shows up on time. He gives power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Is that you today? You have no might? He'll increase your strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. All coming from the hand of the risen Savior. Not a dead philosopher. Not just a simple Jewish rabbi who died and put it on this huge hoax. A Passover plot. But someone who's alive today, who's given us exceeding great and precious promises, whereby we are made partakers of the divine nature. Amen. I'm telling you, for those of you who are readers, like myself, that's good. But this is the book you want to know. Amen. This is the book you want to know it. 
He gives strength and power to the faint. No one can take these things from you. Right now, if we're in the will of Congress to say, we're going to take away the strength of the American people, and they declared it, Senate approves it, President doesn't veto it, we're taking away your strength. <laughs> they can't. Well, they can from some people. They can't take it away from the believer in Christ. It gives power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases strength because we're going to make it. And we're not going to make it because we chant. I can make it, I can make it, I won't give up, I won't give up. I tell God sometimes, I want to give up. You know, come on. Don't look at me with that tone of voice. Well, pastor, you know, I never feel that way. You feel that way as much as I feel that way. So let's just retire and go find some quiet place where no one will bother us. How many of you say, oh, I got to admit, Pastor, I do feel that way. And don't look at me like there's something wrong with me because I know how this works. And then you say, no, I must do my duty. I'm listening to people and they attract fairly large audiences, not necessarily Christian. That, you know, why you should leave your marriage because you're not happy and how to release your wife, how to get rid of her. And, you know, about making money. And when I watched this and one or two of these people, I actually know them. I say to myself, how sad. What's the philosophy of that? They don't know. Oh, I know they go to a church somewhere, but they can't know the Christ that I know. They don't know the book that I know where it says your gold and your silver is cankered. It's rusted. It's worthless. I know the one, though, who gives us something much more precious than gold or silver. He gives, once again, something that the world cannot give, never has given, and never will give. And the world cannot take it away. There's not a devil in hell or walk in the face of the earth. If they all should gather together and come to your house today, and I hope that they don't. <laughs> they are occasionally at mine, I must say it. They all gather and say, let's just go visit Pastor Barnett. But even if they should, they cannot overcome the living God. And they cannot overcome Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this we know by experience, by the way. Because the longer we live, we say, wow, you know, if you think of it, if you're in a rough period today and you're in a rough place right now, and you have some experience with the Lord, remember how many times God has already delivered you. Start thinking about, oh yeah, I was in a tight spot a year ago, three years ago, six months ago, five years ago. I've been in tight jams a lot. God always makes some way of deliverance because of this truth. There is no temptation that has taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who shall not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, and shall with the temptation make the way of escape. There it is. It says over here, over this door, exit. It's an egress. Exit. That's how we get out. That way and that way. Just in case you don't know, it's like being on the plane. <laughs> There's the exits. Just in case you need it. And God makes the exit. Just when you say, God, I can't take it anymore. And sometimes you're really telling him, I mean, he knows that if I push him a little bit more, he's done. And God makes that way. You know, it's like when you're not feeling one, you get hit with the fresh air. God is good. He never changes. He's always the same. He's risen. He's risen. No, again, no intentional disrespect to the deceased, Mr. Schoenfield and others. But they couldn't give it and they can't take it away. They can't take away what I have. They can't take away what you have. There's no one in the tomb, and there's no one that can take away from you the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one. Come with me to the first chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which were really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the gospel according to Luke, Luke's the author of the Acts, is also written to the same person, Theophilus. That's what he's referring to. The gospel according to Luke is the former treatise. 
Verse 1, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, and all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he threw the Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. As Chuck Colson said, 12 men couldn't keep alive for three weeks. These 12 and then many others kept it for 40 years. They never denied Christ. But here it says that he showed himself alive. Now Luke was not an eyewitness. He was not one of the 12. But he's writing what he has experienced and heard from the apostles and his own experience, of course, with the Holy Spirit. And he says he showed himself alive. So we go through the scriptures, which we won't today. At one time in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people saw him all at once. I mean, how do these Bible scholars come up with all this nonsense? And the worst part about it is, and listen to me here, just think about it. Be careful when you send your kids off to some Christian school or some Christian college thinking that, well, it's Christian. If I told you I was an astronaut, how do you know he's an astronaut? Because he said so. He said, yeah. You have to start really researching because, for instance, I knew a man, a young man at the time, went off to a Bible school. His father was a leader in the denomination, and the school belonged to the denomination. When he sent him off to the Bible school, he was on fire for Christ. When he came home, his ear was pierced and his attitude had changed. So he was taught at the Bible school by his professor in psychology that the reason he is the way he is, meaning a little loopy, was because of his father and his mother. He never went back to the denomination he was raised in and went to some nominal church. And I don't know what he's doing today. Maybe he returned to the faith. I don't know. But he was turned off at the Bible school by the scribes and the Pharisees, the modern ones. Don't get me wrong. There are some good schools out there. I'm just saying that's the age in which we live. Christ is the answer. Christ is the way. Christ will not disappoint you, nor will he lie to you. He was risen and is risen by many infallible proofs. And one of those great proofs is the fact that, we'll just keep saying the 12 men wasn't necessarily 12. Never denied their testimony. Didn't matter what they did to them, including taking their life. They never recanted. They went right to the grave saying, yes, he's alive. He's risen from the dead. Hey, by the way, what does that mean for you today? Because Jesus is not changed and again, it doesn't matter if somebody theologically tries to take these scriptures and throw them all over the place and say, Christ isn't a healer, and this is the reason why. That's not what this book says. Christ is the healer. Amen. I know when I'm sick, the first doctor I see is Jewish, Dr. Jesus. Now, I'm not saying I don't see doctors. You know that I do. But he's the first doctor that I say, hey, we need to talk. I've got a problem, and this is what's going on. Amen. Jesus is not... A healer, past tense. Jesus is still our strength. Jesus is still our everything. He has not changed. And you can count on that. Christ. People, well, that's different. You know, pastors and Christian people, whatever, I don't know. Well, I do know, but you can count on Christ. He'll never let you down. He'll never let you down. He can't. He can't change. It's impossible for him to change. Today, what are you leaning on? I spoke about this again Friday night. Next election, we'll get them. Yeah, we'll get them all right. You know what we're getting? You realize what we're getting? I read in the news yesterday, a shooting in South Carolina in a mall, and then another one in the same day in South Carolina. And I know a lot of people that are moving to South Carolina because it's better than New York. I said, well, this doesn't seem to make too much sense. There was a shooting in Kansas. Three sheriffs were shot. They weren't all killed. No one in these things were killed. There was a shooting here in the Albany Mall a week ago. We see the signs. 
We see everything around us is pointing to what Jesus said. When you see these things, look up. What is your foundation today? The stock market? That's a joke. It's an absolute positive joke. John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men at the time in the world, became so sick that he couldn't tolerate his stomach, couldn't tolerate anything but crackers and milk. Is that what you want? Build all these railroads and oil, whatever else he did. And then you know what actually changed him was when he started giving his money away, became a philanthropist. And the more he did, the better he was. I'm not saying he was Christian or not. I'm just saying that he learned that it's not all about hoarding this, oh, I'm so smart. Really? Yeah, well, look at a roller coaster and you got a good picture of the stock market. That's how it goes. Don't lean on a slender reed such as the flesh and such as man and their clever plans. Lean on Jesus Christ. He said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Infallible proofs, a series of unquestionable demonstrations. You can read through this, and I've covered over the years, primarily on on Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, the many signs and evidences. How many atheists or agnostics set out to disprove the resurrection, got caught up in the evidence, and became very forward, devoted Christians? Josh McDowell is one, C.S. Lewis was another. The lawyer Morrison, he wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone? A lot of these things cannot be explained until you look at the evidence, which Mr. Schoenfeld obviously didn't do. He somehow became jaded, that's my opinion, and come up with a false conclusion because the evidence is clear. Who could have moved that stone? Well, we know what the Bible says, who moved it? The stone was massive, it weighed many tons. But Jesus could have moved it. He was beaten almost to death. He was beaten so bad on that Good Friday, he was beaten so bad he couldn't even carry the crossbeam. He was so weak he kept falling down. He almost died from the beating. And then he's going to get up where he's bound in grave clothes and move the stone? That's <laughs> not probable. The fact that money was given to the soldiers to say someone stole the body because they knew the body was gone. And if they had had the body, they would have simply rolled them out there on the streets and say, there's your savior. We have his body. And they didn't. And the disciples didn't have the body because they were standing there looking, listening as he went up into the clouds. The last thing they saw of Jesus was his feet. And then the angels are talking to them while they're standing there. They can't believe what they're seeing. And the angel said, why are you looking into the heavens? This is a paraphrase. Why are you gazing up there? This same Jesus that you have seen go up is going to come back again in the same type of manner. In the book of the Revelation, it says, Behold, I come in, behold he cometh on clouds. It'll be cloud nine. He's coming on the clouds, the Shekinah, the glory of God. Man. Hey, that's what you got to look forward to. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've been there for 2,000 years. Seems like a long time. But time is nothing to God, only to you and to me. He's coming. He's ready to return. I told someone just the other day, as I've told you, this is the first time in my life at this age that I'm saying to myself, it could actually happen before I die. I mean, I've always believed it, but the signs are so prolific and so many that I'm saying to myself, this could be the day. When you hear a voice of a trumpet saying, come up here. You know, like when your dad used to talk to you, you know, come up here. And then, well, if you had my father, you'd go up. But this voice would be pleasant to hear. Come on up. Whoa. We see the evidence written in the Bible. We see the evidence in our prayer life. We see the evidence in the testimonies that we have. So many of you here have told me some amazing things that we've seen God do. The 35 years that I've been here, seen God do some amazing things and change doctor's reports and 
heal people, and on and on. Why? Because he's not changed. Because he's God, he cannot change. Are you sick? Christ is still the healer. That's good news. Still the healer. Who moved the stone? Men don't change their testimony no matter what they do to them. They don't change their testimony. And they endure the most horrible afflictions, including crucifixion, like Peter. But they don't change their testimony. Every one of the original 11 never denied Christ. Never. So if what Schoenfield said was accurate, these people really were pretty stupid. They went to the death believing a lie that a man manipulated. But if they knew it was a lie, like Watergate, like Chuck Colson said, if they knew it was a lie, I'm not going to the death for something I know was a lie. If I'm your friend, if you're my friend, and you've been lying to me, and I'm going out and saying, oh, this guy was, you know, and you had these medals or something you're telling me, then I find out that's a lie. And somebody's going to say to me, tell us the truth. Now that I know the truth, that those medals aren't yours or whatever you said isn't true, I'm going to tell the truth. I'm not going to die for a lie. And they didn't. They died for what they knew was the truth. Jesus had raised himself from the dead. And let me say something else. Christmas, Easter, you know, churches are typically full. Many churches, perhaps most churches. But if people really believe this, who say they believe this, they would be every week. Every time the doors opened, they were making efforts to be with the children of God, the people of God, because that's what happens when it takes hold of your heart, when it takes hold in your soul, and you really know this is the truth. I went to bed just like I do most Saturday nights. I was saying, oh, wow, tomorrow I get to go to church. I get to be with you play with the worship team, I get to preach, and all that. For me, at least, that's proof that I actually believe this. The rest of the week, you know, you know what you're facing, right? Tomorrow, Monday morning? You know what you're facing Monday morning, right? This word is chaotic. It's confused. I don't want to go through all this here, but you know what I'm talking about. Wow. There's still God. (laughs) And he's risen from the dead. And he's going to build this church. Please believe that. You're sick. He's still a healer. You're weak. He's still the one that gives power and strength and might to those who have no strength and have no might. He still chooses, this is scripture, not me, the foolish things to confound the wise. Remember my story. Those of you who know it, I was the guy that wasn't supposed to make it. I made it. But how did I make it? All the glory goes to God. All the glory goes to Christ. All the glory goes to this book and to the word. Yeah. And he chooses us. He says, follow me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And you know one of my favorite verses is him coming to the grave of Lazarus. And I told you this just recently and it's just so great. Martha, he's speaking about the resurrection and Martha says, I know he'll rise again on the last day. At least she knew that much. And Jesus just said, I'm the resurrection. It's not just a doctrine or a teaching or information. I'm the resurrection. Lazarus, come forth. The widow at Nain, when her son died, he touches the buyer, it comes back to life. You tell me what religious teacher ever did those things. Well, there's some in the Old Testament, you know, some of the prophets, Elijah and so forth. You see these things with Christ. It was a regular occurrence. Christ never preached a funeral. I have, but he never preached a funeral. Never. Why? Because every time he went near a dead person, they rose from the dead. Then he says to the Jewish elders, he says, destroy this temple. Destroy my body. In three days, I'll raise it up. And that's exactly what he did. I'll say this again. If people who profess that they believe this actually believed it, you couldn't keep them just like myself. You know, it's Saturday night. You say, oh, great. Getting to go to be with the brethren tomorrow in service. Get the shine put back on. You know, all the rust and the dust and the dirt from this world. 
TV and lawyers selling themselves. And the shine comes back on again. And there's a strength there, you know? I mean, you understand what I'm saying. You could be with 15 other people, but they don't share your belief in Christ. You feel alone. Yes. Right? Sometimes even with your own family, you feel alone. Then you come with the brethren. And you hear the amens and the hallelujahs and the songs and whatever else. And the drummer's not bad, too. Uh, and you hear these things and you see these things. And what do you feel? There's a sense of strength coming back in your spirit again. We're being revived, constantly revived. The outward man is perishing, but the inward man is renewed day by day. Day after day. Day after day. That's what we have in Jesus. And let me just say this one last time. He's ready to return. How soon? Well, that would be wrong for me to say it's going to be next week, tomorrow. But it's going to be soon enough, right? Right you are, soon enough. What are you looking at? You're looking at the guy who says, call me, you got in a car accident? I ain't calling him. He's looking for my money, looking for your money. The signs are everywhere. With even a little bit of biblical literacy, the signs are everywhere. Can you afford? No. Can you manage to put a smile on your face? Huh. <laughs> talking about resurrection. We're talking about eternal life. Huh. At least try it that way. <laughs> Something. Something to acknowledge that, you know, yeah, Pastor, I actually do believe this. I really do. They'll put me down. If Christ don't come first, someone's going to put me down in the box somewhere. I don't know how it all goes after that, but I think of it this way. They're going to put me in a box. They're going to put me in the ground. Then all of a sudden, when they, we're just going to awake. Now, I know whether to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I know my spirit will be with God and take time to explain how that works. But then I'll be reunited. And at that trump, come up here, the dead in Christ shall rise first. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. Amen. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen. When we're with the Lord, I'll be sitting with you somewhere listening to him preach. I don't know what God has for me in eternity, but I know it's not preaching. I know it's not preaching because he's the preacher. You really believe this? I'm so glad that I do. I really am. God help us. Listen to this. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. The idea is of a huge facility with many, many rooms. I was raised in mostly in tenements, you know, apartments. My brother and I slept in a little bedroom, you know. I mean, we got little as I got bigger because he's eight years younger than me. But Jesus says, oh, my father's house, there's so much room. And he goes on to say this, if it were not so, and this wasn't the truth. I would have told you it's not the truth. There's nothing there. Or it's very crowded. If you wake up and you're in some place like Manhattan, you're not in heaven. <laughs> I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Let's bow our hearts this morning. Let's go before the Lord on this Resurrection Sunday and realize that we have hope. Let me tell you this. It takes a bit of effort, sometimes a lot of effort, to keep your mind focused on the truth. On the Word of God. Because the world is providing so many distractions. You know I live on Market Hill. The music is now, in the cars I mean, the music is so loud. I have learned probably 50% of how to speak Spanish just by listening to the music <laughs> coming through the garage. Bang, a ding, 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 ding. What is this? What's going on? I mean, 
Is that part of how this is played? That decibels that would drown out a jet? It's a noisy, chaotic world. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Heads bowed, hearts bowed. I asked you several times during the message, you know, do you really believe this? And that's something that you have to settle in your own heart. I believe it. I really do. I endure. Because you believe it, you endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We cannot grouse about, oh, it's a hard way, it's been a hard life. And yes, it has for most of us, but we are soldiers. Male and female, we are all soldiers in this army. It's time now to do honor to the real general, the real captain of our salvation, and give him the glory with our lives outside the walls of this building, you know, and the way we talk and handle ourselves. That's what you will do if you believe it. Your spirit will communicate with your face and your countenance will show that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And they'll know. Not everybody will be happy about it, but they'll know. That's my question to you today. That's what Jesus has, Martha. I am the resurrection. Your brother's going to rise again. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? And if so, we have beyond a great hope, inexpressible in words. Let's turn to the Lord today. The Bible says he came to free his people from their sins, pays the penalty for our sins, then calls us to a holy life. And that is the way. So let's commit ourselves. We did this just last Sunday. We re-signed. Instead of resigning, we re-signed to continue to serve Christ, to continue to serve Jesus. And that's what I'm going to ask you today. If Christ is not your personal Savior, your Lord, your Savior, this is the day. It's never tomorrow. It's not written in the scriptures. Oh, think about it. It's tomorrow. It's not tomorrow. It's now. Right now, now is the time to accept Christ as your Savior, as your Lord. Today is your time, today, now, to accept Christ as Savior. It's your day. It's your time. It's right now in your car, in your home, in your bathroom, in the kitchen, wherever you are. It's your time. It's your day. Father, I just pray that you would help all of us to continue to endure until we see you face to face. Only you know, Lord, the hearts of men and women. Only you know what's inside of us. Only you know today what heart is truly turning to you. What heart the seed is bouncing off it as if it were concrete. And I don't know. But I do pray that everyone would have this hope in them. That everyone would have this peace and power for Jesus Christ. That as you have written our joy may be full. I freely admit that a week or so back my joy isn't full and I know it. So I'm working on it. I'm trying to keep my mind steadied on you. Stayed on you. God, pour out your spirit in this age. America needs you. We don't need another politician. We need you. We need righteous men and women in positions of authority, but we need you behind them. God, help us. We ask for your help today. We ask you to begin to do as you did in the 1700s, the 1800s, and periodically somewhere or another in the 20th century to fill the churches back up again with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with prayer, with singing, and true fellowship, with a spirit of holiness. God, help us. We need you. We bless you. And today, on this Resurrection Sunday, we remember you. How good you are to us. God, I thank you. I really do. Now, help us, because I know, for me, I need your help to love you with everything I have. All of my intellect, all of my heart, I need your help. And we all need your help to love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength. Now, we need even more help, in my opinion, to love each other. To love you, you're perfect. To love each other, we're not perfect. And we can aggravate and irritate each other. Help us, God, to overcome that by simply just following your commandments and obedience. 
give you all the praise. I give you all the glory. I give you all the honor today, Father. In Jesus' mighty name. Can we all say a nice loud amen? Amen. 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 Happy Resurrection Sunday.